Now it's better. We do welcome you. We know it is Mother's Day, and uh, we'd be neglecting not to mention them. And um, it is uh, a special day to honor our mothers, although, as I was sharing with Dave before anybody else got here, um, I, I, forgive me, but I do find a little bit, uh, a little bit like uh, marketing and trying to sell some cards and candy, kind of like Valentine's Day and other things, because mothers should be honored every day. Every day. There is no higher role on earth than that of a mother. And I don't say that in, in a way of uh, uh, joke. In all honesty, God has entrusted to women the nurture and care of His children. And He has entrusted them not to uh, simply help them grow up, but to grow in Christ. There is no greater calling in life. There is no greater office that a woman could hold. There's no greater way for a woman to spend her days than caring for her children, raising them in Christ, loving her husband, and leaving a mark on generations to come. So we do honor you today, but really we want to honor you every day. We thank you that in Christ, your work doesn't go without being recognized. Hopefully, your husband and your children recognize it. But even if they don't, God is saving up a recognition for you, whether you're ever recognized here or not. And I have a a special opportunity to, to thank my mom, who I don't get to, she doesn't get to come worship with us often, and it is... uh I guess unfair that I get to hold the mic and so I get to talk to my mom. But uh, my mom's very special to me. And she has left her mark. Uh, and uh, any failures that I have are mine. And uh, anything that of uh, good standing comes from my mom. She has been a servant of the Lord. She's been an exemplar, exemplary person to me of someone who would serve Christ day and night that some might come to Christ. So I want to thank you. And it's a privilege to have her here with me today and worshiping Christ with me today. And so we do bring honor to our moms, and we love you, and we appreciate you. And no one can take your place uh, for what you do. But uh, sappy moments included, we are not going to preach a message on moms uh, because we're in Hosea. And not to be disrespectful to the moms, but we have business to attend to. Hosea is closing his letter. And it'd be way, I know the moms would be offended if we took a break from Hosea and talked about them all day. They want to hear the punchline. They want to hear the last words of Hosea uh, to us. And so uh, out of respect for the moms here, we're going to continue in our series. Uh, Hosea chapter 14 verses 1 through 9. And we have not read this particular scripture this morning. And so in way of introduction, as part of the introduction, I do want to read to you this passage um, so that it's very clear where we're headed. We should remember that Hosea 14 is the conclusion. We've been here for months now in Hosea, beginning in chapters 1 through 3, where Hosea was detailing for us the picture, the living parable, which was his marriage. 
Now, it'd be easy to get off track and take the approach to this book that some do, that they preach the first three chapters, and they really use that to simply talk about marriage and then talk about God secondly. Then they get to chapter 4, and I guess in preparation they realize they're kind of out of ammunition on the marriage thing, so there's hundreds of a series on Hosea that began, and they ended in Hosea chapter 3. Uh, and, uh, and you can find them. They're all over the place. Because nobody wants to hear the hard word which Hosea wrote in, ver- in chapters 4 through 13. You know, they want to focus in on the parable and not the reality. The reality, the focus of Hosea has been on God's unending covenant redeeming love for His people. The parable, the picture, the earthly picture of that is marriage. And He proclaims that in the first three chapters. And then He moves to a series of proclamations against the northern kingdom, the northern tribes of Israel. And we've marched through those one at a time. He even in uh, chapter 12 takes a break from the northern tribes and includes the southern tribes and, and speaks to them directly, calling them to repentance and before they go too far and miss the day of grace. And so we come to verse, uh, the verses here in chapter 14, the conclusion, the, the last words of Hosea. Listen to these words that God spoke through the mouth of His prophet. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath His shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Hosea says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgression, or transgressors, stumble in them. Let's pray together. Father, your word speaks directly to us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of the gospel as it is contained here for us in these nine verses. 
Help us to stay the course, to listen intently, not with just our physical ears, but with the ears of our heart, that we might understand that you are righteous and that we might know that your ways are just. That we then will leave this place and live by your way and not face destruction. Oh God, turn the sinner to you. Call those who are not repentive to repentance and belief today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about this chapter, which he preached in depth, said, There is no greater work of poetry in all the Bible. What we have just read is a very compelling passage about the love of God, the redeeming love of God. But it touches on several parts of the gospel. I want to outline it for you and then give you a detailed outline before we get to the one you'll have on the screen. Just three words. Verses 1 through 3. Repent. Verses 4 through 7, grace. Verses 8 through 9, preservation. In these three words, we really can sum up the gospel in some ways. Because the first word calls us to remember who we are. Sinners. Those who have no work to offer God. That is acceptable. Those who stand under the judgment of God. We sit under the counsel of sinners. We walk on the path of the ungodly. Repent, God says. We stand not just in need of repenting, knowing who we are, but realizing who God is. And that second word is one word that might capture the character of God for us. Grace. Can you think of a greater word in dealing with mankind than God dealing with us in grace? We'll we'll get to the outline. Don't get distracted by the outline. This this is why I don't like doing outlines on the screen. Because if they get ahead, I, I see everybody's eyes up there and everybody's, oh goodness, calm down. You'll get the whole message, I promise. We won't leave till I'm done. <laughs> Grace. No greater word in our vocabulary when we talk about God dealing with mankind. We're in need of God's grace. And God is not begrudgingly giving grace, but rather, as we see in verses 4 through 7, He's pouring out grace on us. And we're going to see that hopefully this morning. Preservation, perseverance it might be called. The last verses speak to us of the fact that God never fails to produce salvation in everyone that He calls to Himself. The work of God in our lives, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, will be completed. 
It's not up for grabs. It's not hopeful. It's not if I do enough, if I obey enough, if I'm acceptable enough, if I go to church enough, if I read my Bible, if I pray enough. No. God's work of salvation in the life of that one that is repenting and believing in Christ, God's work of salvation will be completed unto the day of salvation. So we can outline this just in three words. But let's give a little more of an outline, a little more detail here. Repentance is a topic that has been almost forgotten in modern church. Matter of fact, most presentations of the gospel avoid the word at all cost because they fancy that you can come to God without first repenting. But let's never forget that it's Jesus Christ who, when He came, came preaching the gospel of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. His command in the verse is what? Repent. You can't get around it. When the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, what? Repent. And believe. You can't get around repentance. But the modern gospel tries hard to get around repentance. The evangelical gospel tries hard to work around repentance. Why? Because repentance points out who we are. And church isn't about pointing out who we are anymore, is it? Church is about making us feel good. Church is about therapeutic psychiatry. Words to live by. Five things you can do this week to be a better husband. It's not about repentance anymore, is it? The modern church has left off repentance. And we sometimes speak of repentance, but in fairly vague terms. So the first thing I want us to do is see that God calls us to true repentance. And I believe the first three verses of chapter 14 are in direct, a mirror image of Hosea 6. If you'll hold your place in 14 and turn back to Hosea 6, which we covered previously, remember the first three verses there, Hosea 6, 1 through 3, were false repentance, as I understand them. And look what it says. Look at the words and remember how deceptive it is because it sounds like repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord, Israel says. For He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth. And you read that and say, that sounds like repentance. But compare it to the first three verses that we just read together. Return the call of God. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The worst, most disgusting word in the Hebrew language for sin. The most vile word. He could have said a lot of things there, but he chose the worst of the worst. Iniquity. It points out the utter, 
absolute, complete, fallen nature that we possess from our mother's wombs. We come out hating God. Enemies. We don't come out seeking God. We come out rebelling against God in our very nature. Iniquity. And then Hosea says, Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Now compare these words to what we read in Hosea 6. Take away all iniquity except what is good. They've already admitted sin here, right? Never in Hosea 6 do you see even a mention of sin. They don't say they've done anything wrong. They say God tore us up. God brought us down. God will come to us like the spring rain. They don't ever admit who they are. But in 14, when God is teaching them how to repent, He clearly says, Take away from us our iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with the bulls of the vows of our lips. And then they get specific. Assyria shall not save us. We won't depend on our own military strength. We will not worship the works of our hands anymore. And so we see a difference, a contrast between false and true repentance. God calls us to true repentance. We might define repentance. Since I've said the church has forgotten about repentance, it might be helpful for us to remember what is repentance. And I don't mean to speak down to you. Maybe you know. But most in the church, I'm afraid, would not know. Thayer's definition of um, repentance goes like this. To change one's mind or will for the better. Heartily to amend with abhorrence one's own sin. That word abhorrent brings out the depth of repentance. It's not that we think, well, I need some help from God. I'm a pretty good guy. I just need a little bit of Jesus. It's that we abhor and hate our sin. It's a change of mind about who we are. Because if you took a poll of the people of Anniston, Alabama, and asked them, what do you think about yourself as compared to others? I would be willing to say that what you're going to hear is something like, well, I'm not the best guy because I know a few people better than me, but I'm also not the worst guy. I'm a pretty good guy. Rare would be the person who says, I'm a, I am abhorrent. I disgust myself and God. Well, if you got that answer, you'd drop back on your heels and you'd say, where'd this guy come from? What alien ship did he walk off of? And yet God says that ought to be commonplace among people who are really in him, that we know who we are, abhorrent in our flesh, sinful, disgusting, iniquitous, transgressors, failures, rebellious, enemies of God. All words used to describe who we are. And that's why the need for repentance, to have a change of mind or will, and to abhor our sins, to hate it. Repentance includes turning from your sin to God. Notice what he says. 
Israel, return. That's repentance. In the Hebrew, the word for repentance means return. Return, but not just return from your sin. Return to what? The Lord your God. How can I be saved, Paul? Repent and believe. The two are not the same, but they are married to one another. If you separate repentance from belief, you have sorrow, which brings guilt, which will destroy your life. It's worthless unto salvation. If you separate repentance and say, I believe, you're no better than an agnostic, really. You just simply believe there is a God. Even you might say, I'm a Christian agnostic. I believe Christ is God. But without repentance, you cannot be saved. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance includes turning from sin to God. Metanoia, the Greek term for repentance, which is used in the Septuagint here. Metanoia, change of mind. Your whole thought process when you become a Christian is turned upside down. You who are believers have experienced this. You might not term it the way I've termed it. You might use your own words. But it was something like this. It was like my eyes were opened. I had never understood that I was under the wrath of God. I never understood that my sin was so deep. I never saw that it was more than me offending my wife or offending my dad or offending my neighbor. When I became a Christian, I saw I sinned against God and God only when I sinned. Change of mind. You go from these surface level examinations of who you are to the depths of who you are. Return, Israel. Repent, Israel. Change your mind, Israel. Abhor yourself, Israel. But don't just do that. Go to God. Return to the Lord. As we think about repentance, it's both. Repentance flows from a heart that is renewed by God. Look at verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. And look what they are saying in their prayer of repentance, take away our iniquity and accept what is good. Is there anything positive in the verse about them? In other words, is there an action which they're doing? Take away our iniquity and accept what is good. Who is active in their repentance? God is active. They can't take away their iniquity. Do you see that? Take away all iniquity. Except what is good. You say, well, it's their good. No, we're going to see in just a moment. They realize they have no good to offer to God. The statement just under that that looks like a work bringing a bull to complete the vow of their lips. That's not a work. That's the shadow of the crucifixion. The gospel's on display. Repent of who you are, Israel. God, take away our iniquity. God, accept what is good. 
Notice they don't insert any action except a sacrifice. And what is a sacrifice? It's the admission that our salvation comes from somewhere besides ourselves. It comes from external to us. In the Old Testament, during the shadows of the Old Testament, it was in the sacrificial system. When the high priest offered an animal for the sins of the people, it was not he that was removing their sins. It was Christ who was removing their sins. The picture being painted physically in the temple was not what was saving them, but Christ was saving them. All the goat, all the rams, all the sheep, all the bulls, all their blood, Hebrew says, simply pointed to the Lamb of God who would be slain on our behalf. What action are they committing then? What are they doing to save themselves? What are they doing to repent? What actions, what works does God accept? None. He doesn't accept any work but His own. Take away our iniquities, God. Accept that which is good. What's good? A sacrifice. A sacrifice, why? Because it points to Christ Himself. Repentance is a gift from God. Now, skip down to verse 4, and you see what I'm saying. I know it's the next point, but I want to bring it here. Just in way of mention, God says, I will love them freely. You can't earn God's love. Some of you are wearing yourself out to impress God. He's unimpressed. He's unimpressed. As a matter of fact, every work you do to impress God lays on you another burden, another weight, another damnation. For all those who work for their salvation by the law will die under the law. Oh no. It's not more works we need. It's the grace of God we need. Repentance is a gift of God. Now, it's not only mentioned here, but we see that this repentance is something that's a gift from God in Acts. So if you'll hold your place in Hosea, I want to go to because you may say, well, how do you know? Okay, God loves us freely, but how do you know that we don't first repent and then He loves us? It's a work that we do. Acts chapter 11 is just one verse of the many I could reference to show that God's, that repentance is God's gift. Peter goes to the Gentiles. He preaches the gospel after his vision. There's no circumcision that takes place. There's no will accept the law of the Jews that takes place. There's nothing there except when he preaches the gospel, they believe, they repent and believe. And look what the Jews respond to this repentance and belief by saying in verse 18. When they, speaking about the Jews who had come with Peter, heard these things, they fell silent And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to salvation, or life. Repentance is a gift from God. I know it flies in the face of what you may have heard all of your life. 
But you cannot walk down this aisle and bend your knee and hold God hostage to your prayer unless He grants that you repent truly from within. You cannot repent. And you can do whatever seance you want to do, but God is not bound by it. The only repentance that is acceptable is that which comes from the heart which has been changed by the Spirit of God. Repentance comes from a changed heart. It comes through the Spirit of God. Repentance includes specific sins. It's not that we just repent in general. We repent in specifics. Look at verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We can't save ourselves by our great army. And our idols are no good to us. That's the first three lines. A foreign government and army can't save us. We can't save ourselves and neither can our idols save us. We repent of those things. We won't trust in Assyria. We won't trust in our army. We won't trust in our idols. Repentance is not just this vague action. God forgive me of my sins. That might be a good start. But that's not the end. No, there's detail that must be added. What sins are you repenting of? Are you repenting of sins against God or sins that have gotten you in trouble with your wife or your friend or your coworker or your boss or your neighbor? Are you repenting of rejecting Jesus Christ as the one and only way of salvation? Are you repenting today of specific moral sin that you've committed? The Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But that is not a blanket that John is writing about. A blanket that covers all sins in general. No, a heart of repentance becomes very specific. You say, well, I can't remember every sin. You don't need to remember every sin. But I guarantee you, when your heart has been changed by God, you will remember specific sins. You will remember specific sins. They will be brought before you not to shame you, but to bring you in touch with who you are, how in need of a Savior you are, and how freely He gives forgiveness and grace. And repentance is not a one-time action. Repentance is not something we do and then we forget about it. Repentance is a lifestyle. How many days has it been since you repented? Weeks? Months? Years? I mean, repentance is a daily activity. There's not a day that passes, and maybe I'm just the center of the bunch, but there's not a day that passes that there's not specific sin which God brings to mind. And brings before my eyes my selfishness, my pride, my covetousness. In specifics. And my gut reaction is to run from God in that moment, isn't it? When your sin's brought before your eyes, your first instinct probably is, Oh, God didn't see that. 
You know, you know he did, but you think maybe he didn't. And that's why I want to bring out this last line, which you might think, and I initially thought, that's kind of odd. He's the father of the orphan. What has that got to do with repentance? As a matter of fact, what has that got to do with the book of Hosea at all? It sounds misplaced. It sounds misguided. It sounds like a an aside, a rabbit trail. No, because repentance is wholly based on the character of God. Look. You and I must come to the point that we understand that because we are His children, God has a very fathering nature towards us. Especially people who've had a bad home life struggle with this thought. But listen, when you fail, when you sin, when you rebel... In your nature, you say, but God's the last person I want to talk to. But what God is saying through the mouth of Hosea is, Israel, you've sinned against me. But I give mercy to the orphan. Israel, you've sinned against me, but to me you should come. We don't come to Mount Sinai. We come to Mount Zion. Our hesitation in repentance is often because we're not clear on who God is. He is the one who has mercy on the orphan. God is often characterized, if you begin in Exodus and you go through, in Genesis really, but Exodus specifically, and go through The Old Testament, almost every book mentions God as the God of the fatherless. It is His character to be merciful. There's nothing that we say, why the orphans? Because there's no group of individuals on the earth more needy than an orphan. No group. There is no group which has less to offer someone who would help them. Trust me. I've come to find that out personally. An orphan has nothing to offer. They're the most needy and they have nothing to offer and they're the most vulnerable. They're easily taken advantage of. God says, I am the father to these, the fatherless. And in direct representation of his character so that we might know who God is. So that when we repent, we run to him, not from him. Some of you have the courtroom still in your mind as a child of God. You're no longer under the courtroom scenario. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So therefore, when you sin... Return to God, who is the Father to the fatherless, who longs to give mercy.
Some of you would not matter if another word was said because really you need to go home now and get on your face and cry out to this God because you haven't ever met this God. You've got a God that's something akin to an Islamic God who's nothing but a harsh judge waiting to pounce on anyone who fails. And yet we serve Jehovah, the Father to the fatherless, the one who sits in anticipation of mercy. He doesn't require that you work your way to Him. He calls that you come to Him, run to Him, climb into His lap this morning through the gospel and pour out your heart so that He might forgive you and establish you in His mercy and grace. God graciously calls us to true repentance and God graciously saves us. All who repent are saved. God's grace is unmerited. In the first part of verse 4 we see, I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely. I told Heath this morning, Charles Spurgeon preached a manuscript of over 16 pages on the word freely. Out of this verse. I mean, probably a two-hour sermon. And it's all on the word freely. It shows the emphasis that we have to place on the fact that God, we do not earn God's love. It's not a barter that we make with God. God, if you'll save me, I'll give you my life. It's not a barter. He freely saves. He freely gives He is not bound by anything we might do. As a matter of fact, the Bible paints salvation as before the foundation of the world in Ephesians chapter 1. For this very reason. Not only that we wouldn't take credit for it, but that we would think there's nothing we could do to earn it. Salvation is given as a gift from God. God's grace is free to us, but it costs God everything. You sit there and say, but that's cheap grace you preach if all you think is that we get it for free. No, it would be cheap grace if I believe it was free and it came at no cost to God. But it's eternally valuable grace when I say I can do nothing to earn it. Yet, God has given Himself to purchase that grace for me. Now it has become the most valuable of all gifts. Now it has become the most valuable of all characteristics. God's grace is free to me. I don't do anything to earn it. But it cost Him His own Son. On Christ my iniquity was laid that I might be forgiven and set free. God's grace begins, is sustained by and completed by God Himself. Not only can you not save yourself, you can't do anything to keep yourself saved or to make yourself finally saved. God says, all who I foreknew, I predestined. All I predestined, I justified. And all I justified, I will glorify. It's a complete sentence. He knew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And He's going to glorify us. There's no exceptions to that. Jesus said, no one can take you out of my Father's hand. Nothing can separate you, Paul says, from the love of God. Repentance, 
leads to the free grace of God. And finally, God perseveres in saving all who truly repent. I mean, as we look through 5 through 7, we see that our salvation is beautiful to God, like a lily that is blossoming in verse 5. And then it is strong. Our salvation is strong because its roots reach down into the depths of God's character. And we see that not only is it beautiful and strong, but it is, it is valuable to God. It's not cheap. It's valuable. Like the olive tree was to Israel. And it will bear fruit. Salvation will bear fruit, we see in verse 7. Because it says it will blossom like the vine and its wine will be as famous as Lebanon's wine. What a beautiful way to talk about our salvation. Beauty and strength, value and fruitfulness. Hosea says, repent, Israel, and return to your gracious and merciful God who then will complete your salvation. It is beautiful to him. It is strong. It will never fail. It is valuable. It cost him his son. It will bear fruit because he is divine. And we simply are the branches. Finally, God perseveres in saving us. God never fails to complete the work of salvation. I am like an evergreen cypress, God says. You worship these dead wooden statues, and I'm like an evergreen cypress, the strongest tree in the Near East that lived the longest amount of time. God's saying, I'm everlasting, and to everlasting, I never change. I will complete the salvation which I've started. From me comes your fruit. Again, emphasizing there's nothing you do to save yourself, keep yourself saved, or finally save yourself. God does it from beginning to end in Christ, who is the Savior. God's righteous, redeeming love is vindicated in verse 9. As we look at the closing verse of this chapter, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the way of the Lord, the way of the Lord are right and upright, the upright walk in him, them, but transgressors stumble in them. We have here a very classic close to a Hebrew proverb. He's saying, he who has wisdom, he who has ears, he who has eyes. Can you hear Christ? It's very sermons, the way he closed them often. We'll understand these things. We'll know these things. We'll live by these words. But he who is deaf, he who is blind, he who is foolish, his way with the transgressors will perish. Hosea is a book of God's redeeming love. It is applied to us in chapter 14. Through the picture of who Israel is, we see how God deals with us. His children. And maybe you came here today not understanding repentance. It's very possible that you came through these doors believing you were a child of God. And yet now you realize, I've, I've never repented of who I am. I've never repented and abhorred my previous life. 
then return. Repent. Fall on the throne of grace. Call on the name of Christ. He has completed the work. Our salvation is sure. Because our God is righteous. And His ways are right. Let's pray. God, in Your sovereignty.